Hi, welcome to this episode. Today we're talking with Ryan, and he did a master's in history, and he's currently doing a doctorate in human studies. The topic today touches upon his area of interest. And due to using some of the appropriate terms that we would have to use in order to talk about the subject, I've marked this podcast explicit. As you know, I like interviewing scholars, students, academics, amateurs. When they're passionate about their topic, it's that much more interesting. I'm Rosie, I'm a Francophone from Canada, and this is my podcast. Time to talk about some history, eh? Did you want to talk about what you picked as a topic? Yeah, sure. Basically, my topic is um, LGBTQ oppression, kind of from its roots in um, around the 18th century in England, and how that kind of uh, came to Canada and affected Canada, especially during the 20th century, and kind of leading up to where we are today. Because even though we've had a lot of progress since even the 20th century, there's still a lot that needs to be done. So let's start right at the beginning of where you want to start. The 1700s is where a lot of this started to begin, but the law actually dates back to 1533. The Buggery Act was enacted under Henry VIII, and basically this criminalized um, the acts of buggery and sodomy, and at the time, buggery originally meant heresy, but at the time of this law, it very much meant sodomy. Um, sodomy being um, unnatural sex acts, but usually primarily uh, anal sex. That's where the um, criminalization of homosexuality really comes in. The Buggery mm-hmm. Act basically said, okay, if you do this, then you are sentenced to death. It's not necessarily the first time that law has tried to influence this. As far back as 1376, Parliament tried to ban foreign artists and traders from the kingdom under the suspicion that they would introduce sodomy to the kingdom. It was kind of like the fear that they would bring another culture and that they would bring with it um, unnatural practices. King Edward III had actually uh, denied that petition, so no laws were actually enacted at that point, and it wasn't until Henry VIII that it was enacted. And it was reenacted a lot during Henry VIII's reign, and uh, very briefly repealed when his son succeeded him. But by 1548, the Buggery Act was enacted again, and then that's basically what stuck. And, like, the first person who was uh, indicted for the crime of uh, buggery after it was enacted, we don't know for sure whether this was actually a buggery indictment, because... uh, Historians have suggested over the years that because this person got off really leniently, the act said they should be, you know, punished, like, with death. It's assumed that it might have been a burglary charge that was just (laughs) misread on the old records. Mm -hmm. But um, it's important to note that just because there's not a lot that really happened after that. Despite that they enacted this buggery act and said, okay, this is punishable by death, they didn't really do much for it. Not a lot of people were indicted for it. Not a lot of people were punished for it. Probably one of the most famous um, during this period was in um, the uh, mid-17th century, around the 1630s, the Earl of Castlehaven was um, beheaded for uh, rape and sodomy. But not a lot besides that really 
So we have to move forward in history to start seeing this act kind of taking shape. Exactly. And that kind of really happened in the early 18th century. The early 18th century kind of, there was a lot going on at that period. Um, the, the glorious revolution happened in 1688 and there was kind of like an upheaval. People were getting used to new ruler in their country. They were uh, kind of disillusioned by some of the things of, from the old ruler. They wanted more stability. They were kind of panicking about um, the state of the country and morality and different things like that. So kind of right at the start of the 18th century, there is this group called the Society for the Reformation of Manners, and they basically decided to start this campaign to eliminate immoral behavior. And one of the things they really focused on was sodomy and sodomites, which are what they called the people who engaged in sodomy. And it didn't necessarily make an impact right away. They were making these campaigns, they were publishing materials, but you weren't really seeing anything in the trial records. There were very few trial records that actually showed people being indicted for sodomy. And those who were, basically at the time, a lot of people were not convicted because there wasn't enough evidence. The evidence failed to satisfy the jury. The thing was, at the time, we have to consider it's the early 1700s. There's no DNA testing, things like that. Um, was the judicial system very developed at that time? I would say, yeah, they had a judge, they had a jury. You were sworn under oath to give your uh, testimonies. At this point, the defense did, was not allowed a lawyer, but um, by a couple decades later, uh, the defense was allowed a lawyer. There was not a lot that you can prove besides um, witness testimonies. Similar to witch trials. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so the witness, the character witnesses actually made a big difference. There were a lot of people where they had been indicted. Somebody had said, oh, they engaged in sodomy. But then they bring in this character witness who says, oh, well, this is actually like a really good married masculine man. You mm -hmm. would never do something like this. And the jury's like, okay, well, he's okay. Obviously, uh, you wanted to have a good character witness. Um, mm -hmm. There were cases where, I'm not specifically when it comes to sodomy trials, but there were cases in general, like of trials where people would bring in their character witness for something, and the character witness was not a very good one. Character witness might have been the person who had done the crime with them. <laughs> but in those cases, the character witnesses were not very credible. Mm -hmm. So it really depended on who you brought in, and that made a difference. So none of these people were being convicted. The Reformation of Manners was having people convicted, but this was in civil trials with like civil magistrates, and there are not really records for that. So we can't say 100% that people were not being convicted, but we can only say what we have. And the Old Bailey Courthouse in London, those trial records show a lot of people being acquitted. And a lot is still a very small number. <laughs> there were actually very few of these trials happening. The Reformation of Manners focused on it a lot, but that's why they were doing it before civil magistrates. And if we had records for that, we would probably see a lot more. But mm -hmm. the actual courts were not as concerned with this. Sodomy was not something that was easy to convict due to the lack of proof, the lack of evidence, as well as it was just something people didn't really talk about so much at the time, so there were not a lot of accusations either. People didn't know about it, or if they heard the word, it was like, oh no, 
So nothing really happened in terms of uh, actual uh, sodomy convictions until about 1726, but little things started popping up along the way, things that kind of helped move toward that point. Aside from the Reformation of Manners, um, basically publishing materials where they threatened to reveal like the homes of sodomites and everything. They had other people publishing material that talked about sodomites. There was an author, a satirist, uh, named Ned Ward, and he published this book in 1709 called The Secret History of London Clubs, and it's satire. It's meant to make people laugh. but. At the same time, satire is only really good satire if it's based on fact. And so he talks about what he called the Sodomites or the Molly's Club, and he talked about Molly houses, which were basically the 18th century uh, version of gay bars. Obviously, this was illegal back then, so it's not like they were open, like, underground, mm-hmm. usually in taverns or boarding houses, and uh, men would come here to congregate with other men, and... The way Ned Ward puts it, uh, we don't know if this is true because it is satire, but he does put it that they would have fake weddings and uh, even go so far as to pretend to give birth, pretend like mm-hmm. they have this whole life with somebody in those. Mm-hmm. So they were role-playing role within playing. their community. And while we have no evidence that this actually happened, there were Molly houses at the time that had what was called a marrying room, so it did suggest that they did at least have pretend weddings. But things like this kind of brought people's attention to sodomy. Things like uh, the Reformation of Manners, the satire being published. Suddenly this subject that nobody knows about, they're starting to know a little bit about it. So as people are starting to know a little bit about it, a couple more people are being accused because now people know what it is and they know how they can use it as an accusation. The Reformation of Manners, obviously they don't do the raids themselves, but they were very uh, connected with the constabulary. There was no official police force at the time, but they did have a constabulary that and did... can you explain what a constabulary is for those who might not know? It's basically like a police force. It's basically what led eventually into a police force. It's not like a universally established system. Each one kind of had like their own regulations and whatnot but these were the officers that kind of tried to keep the peace in society. And they worked with the Society for the Reformation of Manners in order to try to bring in some of these immoral people. The wave had started. Uh, They had some people who were being arrested for sodomy uh, turned into informers. Basically, they said, you can walk free if you help us find other sodomites. So now you have witnesses that are quote-unquote credible (laughs) witnesses that are credible people who can tell you where the molly houses are where the sodomites usually meet um, all these secret spaces that maybe they didn't know about before so they're starting to have like constables going undercover into the molly houses and trying to find out what's going on um one of them he had noted when he was uh, undercover in a molly house that um he found about 40 to 50 men uh, making love to each other, as they called it. Um, So his report must have been quite interesting to read. It's interesting some of the language that they used. An example of just some of the interesting languages, there was one case that was dismissed. Obviously, they decided there was not enough evidence, but the way that they described this not enough evidence was there was not enough evidence to prove that the spermatic injection had occurred. That's one of the things, too, is these trial records were published for the public. They were not private. 
what you have to be very uh, critical when going through them about what the content in them because you don't know what has been changed, sensationalized. Um, to be shocking for the public. Exactly, shocking, entertaining. Mm-hmm. You don't know what kind of content they might have cut out because it, maybe it was too much, uh, especially in the later 18th century. They used to cut a lot of the information. But now that people are going undercover, now they can start doing raids. And so they're raiding Molly houses um, in the early to mid-1720s. And the big event kind of happened, 1726. There was a raid of a Molly house in uh, February. About, like, I think, like, 40 men were apprehended. Uh, Five of those men were indicted. And I believe three of those men were executed. And this was a big thing because not only had nobody been executed yet for sodomy in the 18th century, or even for a lot of the period since the Buggery Act, some people had been, but very few, and none since 1700 began. But this was the first guilty verdict of the 18th century as well. Mm -hmm. And it happened to be three men at the same time, all being hanged at the same time. This caused enough of, like, a spectacle that uh, the people who came to watch the hanging, the, oh, what do they call them, like, the bleachers or whatnot, Mm -hmm. broke because they were too heavy. It was a big thing for them. But this is kind of where things changed, too. Because now that they're seeing that sodomites exist, sodomy is real, this is the punishment for sodomy, there are more people who are coming to trial because people know what it is. And now it's part of their entertainment. It's part of their entertainment. People would use it as blackmail, Mm -hmm. uh, say, okay, if you don't do this, then I'm going to accuse you of sodomy, knowing that you could face the death sentence for this. And not every, not every trial would result in the death sentence, even those who were found guilty sometimes would be like imprisoned, uh, stuck in the pillory, receiving a fine. Usually it was like all three of them, so mm-hmm. not just a fine, but two years imprisonment, an hour in the pillory, and, and a big fine. fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in some cases there were still hangings, but it really depended on the case itself as well as the judge and jury. In some cases, there would be a judge who was a little more strict. Um, in some cases, there'd be a judge who was a little more lenient. I know there was one that was tough but fair in that he would try not to give the death sentence if possible, but that he would be like the one who would constantly give like all the other punishments at once. Be like, okay, I'm saving you from death, but you still committed a really terrible felony, so mm-hmm. you have to deal with all of this. And did you see if there was a difference in class or, you know, the status of the person? Did it seem to have a lesser fine or it, was it worse? It didn't, the class didn't come up a lot in the trial records, but that's one of the things that we have to consider when we're reading them. Class can easily get somebody out of even having to go to a trial. If they're important enough or rich enough, they can pay off and not even have to go to trial. Most of these were lower class people. In some cases, we would read about like higher class people who had been accused of or um, convicted for sodomy, such as the Earl of Castlehaven in the 17th century. But usually that's outside of the trial records, and those would be big events where Mm -hmm. everybody... It's a scandal. This is a well-known person, so they can't escape that. 
But when it came to the actual trial records, you almost never see somebody of a higher class in there. Probably one of the highest, not I wouldn't say necessarily high class, but high profile people that you kind of see in the trial records doesn't really come until the end of the 19th century. Oh wow, it's pretty far in. And that would be Oscar Wilde. But basically, yeah, everything um, started to kind of go up from here. After this whole execution in 1726, there were a lot more apprehensions, like arrests. In 1727, the Reformation of Manners was preaching about all the good work they had done in the past year. But the thing is, even at this point, though, it's only been about less than a year since they've really started to make a difference with these executions. The Reformation of Manners is already losing popularity because people are not happy with them trying so many people before civil magistrates and not letting them go to an actual trial. But there was also the problem with the Reformation of Manners was um, extorting people, blackmailing people. Even the people that they were extorting were usually the criminals. So they're already losing popularity, but their wave has started. Even if people are not so fond of the Reformation of Manners anymore, they know still that sodomy is happening. And mm -hmm. So trials are continuing. The 1730s was full of them. Some people were executed, some people weren't. But when the Reformation of Manners um, disbanded in 1738, they retired, they said, we're done with this, things started to calm down a little bit. So it's not making too much of a difference. Uh, the Reformation of Manners is gone and people are not listening to their preaching. That's one of the things they did a lot was preach. And so without them standing there and preaching about sodomy, out of sight, out of mind. And the trials are still happening, but just not as large a degree as they did over the past two decades. Mm -hmm. And it's not as little as it was prior to the 1720s, but it's still far less. Ned Ward's Secret History of London Clubs um, continued to be, like, new editions came out over years and years and years, but the last time that it featured the Sodomites and Molly's Club was in 1756. So after that, it's calmed down, people aren't caring so much. In the late 18th century, it very briefly kind of worked up again. The Reformation of Manners had returned, um, other groups were forming, campaigns were continuing again, but there's far less that we can really gain from the trial records at this point because they were very detailed trial records in the early 18th century you had all these witness accounts everything but by the 18th century as i mentioned they started to kind of take some of that information out start omitting it so all you would see in the late 18th century in the records was this person was indicted for sodomy this was uh, the sentence and that's it so we don't know what the details were, therefore we don't really know how just or how... Exactly. We can't really look into that as much um, as we did to the earlier records. And there are some ideas of why the records were very sparse at this point. Um, one of the thoughts was people were concerned about people reading about sodomy um, because even though... Um, it was important for society to know that this was happening so that they could, you know, catch people doing it. There was also the concern that if people read about sodomy and they were sodomites, they'd know other people like them exist and seek them out. And there were also people who were concerned about their children because maybe the children couldn't read, but they'd be getting this information from parents, from siblings, from mm -hmm. their community. And they didn't want children to be hearing about this. Mm -hmm. So the records would just be very sparse. They'd just say, okay, it happened, 
this was the sentence. So it became a very technical kind of charge. It wasn't as emotional or as entertaining. Yeah, exactly. And basically, that's kind of where the whole 18th century stuff kind of, um, it drops off. We don't do very much more with that. In the 1800s, it was still pretty quiet. It became a little less of a big deal because in 1861, the Buggery Act was repealed. was replaced with legislation that still criminalized sodomy. The sentence was now life imprisonment instead of death. Still criminalizing it, but it's a step. And so people were not as concerned about it. And so at this point, too, there's also a lot of settlement going on around the world because this starts in England. And so English people are going around the world and trying to settle other countries. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of where Canada starts to come in because um, gay men actually played an important role in the settlement of Western Canada in the like mid to late 19th century. And this is because um, due to like a more transient population, everybody's coming and going all the time and limited moral regulations uh, that included like a lack of policing during this period, they could easily come and be themselves and express themselves without fear. So as early Canada is being settled, um, it's not like everybody who came over here was a gay man. As Canada started to become settled more, that's where it kind of started to get um, ruthless again. They started to establish like police forces and laws and especially after uh, Canada became its own country in um, 1867. I know 1890, uh, there was the creation in Canada of this gross indecency law, and it branded gay men, basically, uh, sodomites, as sexual and moral perverts. So this kind of fueled... There was this social purity movement happening in the late 19th century, and it's not unlike the movement that was happened that the Reformation of Manners was uh, doing in the early 18th century. So this is still in England at this point. This is kind of all over the world. Okay, so the social purity movement was happening in Canada, the United States, England, Australia. It was everywhere. So this one wasn't just an English thing, but since it was happening here in Canada, that is where a lot of this is um, kind of like translated into starting to be a Canadian legal thing instead of just brought over from England. Mm -hmm. So the social purity movement was basically about um, the same things that the Reformation of Manners were doing in early 18th century London. It was um, getting rid of immoral behavior, and a lot of that was focused on sexual not just gay men, infidelity, prostitution, Mm -hmm. but uh, it was one of the things that was big was homosexuality, Um, especially because in 1892, that's when we actually get terms like homosexuality. That's when we started to get these terms in the English language. They'd been developed in the uh, mid-19th century by a German doctor named Robert von Kraft. Uh, He published what he calls a medico-legal text called Psychopathia Sexualis. And it's kind of like an early version of the DSM, the Diagnostic um, and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, where he would talk about all these psychopathic uh, sexual behaviors. Um, He gave definitions for them, potential reasons for what have caused them, and suggested treatment. The homosexuality was introduced as one of these psychopathic sexual behaviors. And so we first have these terms, heterosexual and homosexual. We understand what they mean. It's no longer just, oh, this person's a sodomite. Mm -hmm. It's more, we have the terminology, we understand this, 
and oh no, now we know what it is. This is kind of also where Oscar Wilde was arrested. This is now a big thing. People know what a homosexual is. And Oscar Wilde was arrested in 1895 and ended up being sentenced. He had a brief imprisonment, but his sentence was mostly two years of hard labor. But he had like his whole livelihood stripped from him. He was destitute afterwards. This famous author who had wrote all these great books basically died depressed with several years. Do we even know years. if he was a homosexual at that time? Well, he was convicted. You never really know. We have to be critical of everything because the sources that we have are potentially very biased. Even the people who are writing the primary documents, they're writing the letters, the diary mm -hmm. entries, they have their own thoughts going through their head that might not reflect what's actually happening yes. in reality. I believe Oscar Wilde is regarded as one of the most famous gay men of history. Oh, really? I didn't um, know that. And I think it's because of a lot of this. Mm -hmm. So maybe we don't know for sure, but society has very much accepted that it was his reality. Yeah. And he's still a famous author, and we still love him. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I love reading his work. Yeah, no, he's fantastic. <laughs> We're starting to turn over into the 20th century. Um, there's a lot going on. Um, this social purity movement is really taking hold in Canada. Um, between 1880 and 1930, there were like 313 reports of sexual offenses between men, so two men together, mm -hmm. in Ontario alone. And I believe uh, between 1910 and 1930, there was about like 35 to 40 in Vancouver alone. So just Just one. in the city. Yeah, yeah, just in the city. So people are really starting to notice this again. And it's starting to really take hold in other areas. It kind of really gets into the Canadian government around um, World War II. So raids are beginning to happen in the 1940s. Um, local authorities, so like police officers and whatnot, are conducting raids in public places like bathrooms all over the country. And they're starting to add screening for World War II um, recruits where people would, could be rejected for homosexuality, which was filed under the category of... Uh, psychopathic personality and around like uh, 1120 recruits were rejected in 1944 alone for psychopathic in personality in Canada. in Canada. The thing is with psychopathic personality we can't know for sure it's just one of the things mm -hmm. that led to that however we don't have any evidence in Canada for this but there was an American study that was actually done at the time, during the period, so 1943 to 1944, where they looked at um, their version of psychopathic personality in their recruiting system, and they found that um, most of them were homosexual. So even though we don't know if it was the same in Canada, we have this evidence, at least from the United States, that suggests that it's possible in Canada mm -hmm. that most of them were homosexual, and that's why they were rejected. And it was kind of after this, things kind of escalated. We get into the 20th century with these new terms, this terminology that defines exactly what it is. So you can't just have this idea in your mind anymore of, oh, this is what a sodomite is. Because they didn't define that back then. You, people just knew. It's very difficult um, when there is no terminology associated with what you're doing no official terminology associated mm -hmm. because everybody has a different idea of what that act is, who you are, who, what kind of people have 
been doing this, whereas the homosexual was a very clear thing. And as the 20th century is progressing, more people are starting to understand this as more is happening in terms of the law and the government with it, such as the addition to the screening for World War II recruits. A lot more people are starting to see what this is. So the early 1950s is where the Canadian government really starts uh, really starts pulling this in. Early 1950s, there was one gay man who was asked to resign from the communications branch of the government, which basically started a whole movement in the government to, okay, we've asked this one gay man to resign. Let's find all the rest that we could possibly find wow. in the government. So it's a witch hunt. Justin Trudeau, our prime minister, he has referred to it as a witch hunt. A witch hunt, yeah. He has used those exact words. It sure feels like one, yeah. And so homosexuals were deemed to be a national security risk in Canada at this time. It was assumed that, say, foreign threats could use the homosexuality as blackmail. That makes no sense. I mean, blackmail can be done in many, <laughs> many different ways. <laughs> so they started this um, with kind of just trying to find out who was homosexual and then just kind of asking them to resign or quietly dismissing them. And between 1956 and 1963, over 150 civil servants, just the civil servants, were uh, dismissed from their positions alone. In 1953, they added the terms buggery and gross indecency to as triggering offenses to this new procedure for sentencing criminal sexual psychopath in Canada. And criminal sexual psychopath had been added to the Canadian Criminal Code in 1948. So now it's included, like, okay, if you are found to be uh, engaging in buggery or gross indecency, you are a criminal sexual psychopath. And um, they were getting imprisoned for this? This sentencing procedure was added in 1961 to the dangerous sexual offender legislation, which basically said, okay, p consenting homosexuals can be sentenced to indefinite detention. So it's not necessarily life imprisonment, but it's it indefinite. Yeah. It's basically They life. can basically say, yeah. we're sending you to prison, and then just keep Forget about not, you. Yeah, forget about you. Choose mm -hmm. not to let you out. And so in the 1960s, as all this is happening, the Canadian government wants to have this better idea of how to really find these homosexuals. So they start developing what they're calling a fruit machine, that would determine homosexuality. It was almost like a lie detector type of thing. They would hook you up to a machine and they would like read things like uh, your heart rate, your pulse. Um, they would show you images and whatnot. They'd look at like your retinas and whatnot. They'd show you uh, images. Um, they would say words that they consider to be uh, gay words or uh, heterosexual words and try to gouge the reaction to both. But thankfully, <laughs> Test results throughout the 1960s were inconclusive, <laughs> and by 1967, the project was abandoned altogether. Mm -hmm. One of the things that they really did at this time that also leads us back to what was happening in the 18th century was um, informants. They would oh, wow. try to get people to rat out their friends within um, the civil service, the military, the RCMP, and they would interrogate people to the point of trying to break them so that they would just say, give in and say, okay, I'll give you all the names. So now it's heightened. Exactly. And so it's like, we've got all the same things that are happening. We've got the raids, we've got the informants, we've got all the blackmail, but 
a lot more people understand it now. Newspapers, the media, mm -hmm. there's everything. Even the government has easier processes. So 1968, for example, the RCMP produced a list of nearly 9,000 suspected and confirmed <laughs> homosexuals in Ottawa alone. What? But just in yeah. Ottawa. That's crazy. But this is where things start to get a little better. In 1969, we know, like, there are a lot of things that are happening worldwide in 1969. Um, several countries decriminalized homosexuality at this point. Um, the Stonewall Riots occurred in the United States in 1969, which is considered, what, like, the kind of start to the whole gay rights movement. So can you explain that a little bit? Um, in uh, New York in June of 1969, so we just had its 50th anniversary, basically the Stonewall Inn was um, kind of this gay bar, but since this was illegal, gay bars were underground, raids were happening. Basically, one of these raids um, occurred on the night of June 28th, and people just decided to fight back against the police and riot against them. And it brought in so many people that this riot grew. And it happened again the next night, too, because after this whole riot had happened, the police thought, okay, well, this happened one night. So they come back the next night, and it happens again. And suddenly, this is where kind of the gay rights movement is starting. Wow. In Canada, though, the thing is, we we tend to think of Stonewall, even like even though it happened in the United States, a lot of people tend to think of it as this kind of worldwide start to the LGBTQ community starting to get this these rights. Canada, it was actually um, the end of 1968 where a bill was first introduced to decriminalize homosexuality. So it was prior to this. So it was prior to this. It hadn't actually been official yet, but the Criminal Law Amendment Act was enacted in 1969. It decriminalized homosexuality in Canada. There were still restrictions on it, though. Consent was involved. Age was involved. It wasn't like just mm -hmm. an 18 or up. It was a 21 and up, as well as it was only allowed in private residences. So, so no more Molly houses, no more gay bars. Gay no bars more... were not supposed to be a thing yeah. still. Mm -hmm. uh, you couldn't go holding hands with your partner in public. Mm -hmm. It was still not So allowed. everything is still private. It's still very private, mm -hmm. sure. It, we consider it, it's legal, but it's still very private. And people who had been imprisoned for it before were still in prison. It's not like they they're just released. let out. Yeah. Which is a very big difference between decriminalization and legalization when we think about these things because when something's been legalized usually it results in um overturning different things overturning things um there's a lot less wiggle room there whereas decriminalization they can just say technically it's not a crime anymore but, but it's like what the big um controversy um kind of these past couple of years with the decriminalization of marijuana, it's mm -hmm. people who are people are still in prison for marijuana charges in Canada. It's not legal, it's decriminalized. Yeah. Even though people keep saying legalized because they don't understand the difference. Mm -hmm. And I mean, most people wouldn't mm -hmm. understand the difference because it sounds the it's, same, essentially. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, being homosexual was allowed now. Raids still continued to happen on a large scale throughout the 1970s, but on a smaller 
Hamburg scale still happened until the 1990s. One of the last recorded raids, we don't know if this is the actual last one, was in 1994 in Montreal. So, like 150 people had been yeah. arrested in that raid. That's so. not very far in, the, in history. No, not at all. But despite that these raids are still happening throughout the 1970s, like this is where the gay rights movements was, were really starting to happen. Um, the first gay rights movement in Canada was in 1971. Different groups from BC, Ontario, and Quebec all gathered in Ottawa to protest outside of Parliament Hill. And this would continue throughout the 1970s. And they actually started to develop gay rights conferences throughout the 1970s. Okay. So when we think of like academic conferences and everybody going and making their mm -hmm. speeches and networking, this is the kind of thing they did, but for gay rights. The Canadian Human Rights Act was introduced in 1976. It did not include anything about sexual orientation at this time, but somebody did do a study asking people if they think it should have included sexual orientation. And surprisingly, like a good surprisingly, but um, this is only 1977 and 52% of participants said yes, sexual orientation protection should have been in the Canadian I mean, that's Human a pretty rights big Act. jump from where we were at the beginning of the century. So in a this way, that's a pretty that's big pretty jump good. from even where yeah. we were about like 10 years yeah. earlier <laughs> to <true>. that. <laughs> and so, because even 10 years earlier, it was still illegal. Mm -hmm. It's quickly and slowly changing because remember, the government at this point is still kind of not so fond of ideas. The general population seem to be understanding. Um, a lot of this is also because the mid-20th century, late 20th century is also when um, a lot more of these academic theories started coming out. So gender theory, queer theory, there are a lot of more scholars who are talking about these things. They're starting to really create all this knowledge and information for people. Interestingly, it doesn't necessarily bear a lot on all of this, but Canada, like this is kind of one of the important points. This all happened in Canada because it came from England. Canada did not actually gain independence from the United Kingdom until 1982. So it's like this, all of this happening in the 20th century was still very related to that, still very related to these laws that came over in England. It's not until 1982 where we can say that everything that's happening in Canada is all Canadian. So the 80s is where there's still a lot going on. The 80s was like the big AIDS crisis, which was a huge thing. Thousands and thousands of people died and even just Ontario alone. And AIDS was basically labeled as the gay disease. And to this day, there's still restrictions on gay men donating blood because of this. But it's still not perfect because one of the things several years ago, the big thing was uh, gay men can now donate blood if they haven't had sex for a year. Now, um, as of I think about uh, last year, gay men can now donate blood um, if they have not had sex for, I believe, three months. It's very still stigmatized because they're still using homosexuality as a means of policing. They're still saying like, look, you can't engage in your homosexual acts if, if you, you want, want to, to give blood. Yeah. There can be so many more people donating, but they would get turned away. A lot of um, HIV recipients end up getting it through, say, um, dirty needles, yeah. injections like that. Mm -hmm. So even if they're not outright saying that now, there are different regulations basically say that. The 1980s made this big impact on saying to people, okay, yeah, sure, it's not illegal to be gay, but you're going to damage other people. 
Some of the things, though, the 1990s is kind of where things did start to look up a little bit. 1992, the ban on gay and lesbian soldiers in the military was lifted. In 92. That's 92. also very recent, yeah. Yeah. 19, like I said, 1994 was the last recorded raid that we know of. So after that, there's not really raids happening anymore. But it's like, just even think about that for a moment. Homosexuality has been decriminalized at this point for about 25 years, but raids are still happening. Finally, it was in 1996 that protections on the ground of sexual orientation were added to the Canadian Human Rights Act. So finally, at this point, people are saying, okay, you're gay, people cannot discriminate against you for that. It still happens, but <laughs> there is at least legislation now to try to protect you. 2005 was when um, marriage equality was legalized in Canada, so it's about another nine years after the protections were added to the Human Rights Act, but things are happening. 2014 is when the ban on transgender soldiers in the military was lifted, and 2017 was when uh, protections on the ground of gender identity and gender expression were added to the Canadian Human Rights Act. Most provinces already had provincial human rights codes that included stuff like this. Um, Ontario, for example, that has had protections for trans people since 2012. Not a lot of people know about that, but... So it's like, uh, for example, we hear a lot about what's happening in the United States with transgender people, especially like the washroom debacle. Yes. That's not a thing in Ontario. Trans people can use whatever bathroom they want. It's not really a thing here. No. And 2017 was also an important year because that's when um, our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, had delivered this formal national apology on behalf of the Canadian government for all these things that happened in the late 20th century, especially the 1950s and 60s, with the people who were uh, hunted and dismissed from the civil service, the military, the RCMP. And at this point, everybody who was on record as being dismissed for this reason, they all received actual like apologies. They've got like um, certificates or whatnot. I've seen one. So it's official, official. <laughs> I've, yeah, I've seen one of them. Um, there's a professor at our school who was involved in that. So wow. that's quite interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so we've made all this progress, but the important thing to really focus on is we saw what happened in the early 18th century, and then we saw it die down. A little bit. Like, obviously, the laws weren't necessarily changed the way they are today. But we saw it die down. And then we saw it rise back up in the 20th century. And that's just really an example of how it can rise back up again. And a lot of people, especially um, the last couple of years, there's a lot of people who have been arguing, why is something like pride still necessary? And this is exactly why. Because if you have to ask that question then obviously there's still some stigma towards the LGBTQ community. A lot of people don't understand this history, especially in Canada. I had seen a comment from somebody uh, several weeks ago where they said, why is pride still necessary? Nobody who's alive today in Canada has ever been discriminated for being gay. Protections, for example, for trans people were not added to the Human Rights Act until two years ago. There are teenagers alive today who are still experiencing that. And even with these laws in place to help protect people, that doesn't get rid of the discrimination. It helps protect them, especially um, on a uh, systematic level. If somebody makes it very clear that they're firing you for being gay, you mm -hmm. can 
you can report them. You can them. fight it. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But people are still being um, bullied, being beat up, violently attacked, murdered for being part of the LGBTQ community. And this history in Canada is still very, very recent. And while people are still asking these questions like that, part of the problem too is like, it's not really taught. This information isn't taught in schools. The children aren't even taught about being gay in schools. There was the uh, new sex ed curriculum that was introduced in Ontario in 2015 that was repealed last year because it was considered by the conservative government to be too controversial. And this is a sex ed thing that basically just tells kids about things like gender identity and sexuality. But even something like that is considered too controversial, and so they repealed that whole sex ed and returned to the 1998 one that has no discussion of consent at all, uh, no discussion of gender and sexuality. One of the things that was also discussed in the 2015 one was social media because with the internet these days that is a really important thing you get to like the teenage years uh sexual predators sharing um inappropriate inappropriate photos photos. Mm -hmm. and now the conservative government says that it's creating a new sex ed that's just going to be less controversial but the fact that they repealed all this and said we're just going to put in place the 1998 one until we've worked this out they can make that backstep, other backsteps can happen. It's a wave, and as long as backsteps, even if minor backsteps like that keep happening, then some rights might be lost, mm-hmm. these waves will start happening again, and it's something we have to all be very um, conscious about, very mm-hmm. aware about. And the thing is, like, these days too, there's a lot more understanding about things like this, and actually, people think, like, the LGBTQ community is a very small portion of the population, but there was a study in, I believe it was 2015 or 2016, it's been a couple years since I read it, where um, they found that, this was in the United States, it wasn't in Canada, where they found that over 50% of adolescents in the United States do not identify as heterosexual. It doesn't necessarily mean they all identify as gay, they could be bisexual, Mm -hmm. they could be pansexual, they could just be questioning. So it's not this very small minority, it's a lot of people just still have this heteronormative idea that being straight is the default, and being everything else means you're othered, you're different. It's like trying to explain to to people like um, things like uh, being intersex or whatnot. Um, they think of um, sex and gender on a very binary scale, and they say there can only be two genders because there are only two sexes. And you try to turn around and you say, no, actually, there are a lot of people who are born intersex, so there, we can't just say there are only two sexes, technically. And people say, oh, but that's so rare, you never meet people like that, blah, blah, blah. There are just as many intersex people, statistically, in the world as there are redheads. That statistic is almost exactly the same in percentage. And intersex, for those who might not know, can you explain that, what it is? Intersex, basically, is when you are born with more than one sexual characteristic in that um, it's not necessarily two sets of genitals, which is what people tend Mm -hmm. to assume when you try to explain that, but it would be like um, your hormonal makeup or your chromosomal makeup 
does not fit into one sexual binary. It's not just what we have for male or female. There's a lot of like intricacies in there. And sometimes it can be like internal sex organs. It can be uh, somebody who has external male genitalia but might have some internal female genitalia. Usually intersex people like are unable to have children. Um, they're not fertile. And usually that's when a lot of people do find out that they're intersex. Oh, I see. <laughs> like, it's, some people do find out earlier on. If it's yeah. an evident, very physical thing, then it's something that can be discovered even as early as birth. But when it's, say, a chromosomal thing, some people will go through the process of not being able to have children and get a lot of tests done and find suddenly, oh. That's why. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, actually, a um, little bit of a backtrack. It doesn't really have a lot to do with everything I've discussed. But while we're on the topic of um, intersex people, uh, sex changes actually became a thing due to intersex people. After these terms homosexual and heterosexual were defined, it suddenly became this thing where, oh no, I could possibly be turning someone into a homosexual just by having, like, um, uh, relations. Exactly. So it was very much, a, okay, now I have to get the sex change and whatnot. And that's where that kind of really developed in the late 19th century. The connections are really heavy when you're looking at specifically the two eras of the 18th century and 20th century. Well, yeah, the 18th century is a lot of when the understanding that we have in the 20th and 21st century started to really develop. So we look at, say, the um, 18th century and say, okay, this stuff is happening. They're not totally getting it yet. Um, they, they're trying. They tried to understand homosexuality, for example, but they didn't have the terminology. One of the things that they came up with was a third sex, which was supposed to be, um, they explained a homosexual man, like a gay man, a sodomite, was physically male, but internally female. So the way we might describe a trans woman today who um, has not gone through any surgery but they would try to understand it. They weren't understanding it the way we were today. So the 19th century comes along and this understanding kind of really starts to cement itself as people define it. And everybody starts, there's a lot more um, material these days for people to start actually learning about it. And then the 20th century happens, this is all understood. We all know what it is. And now that it's all understood, we can really move forward with that. But the moving forward was very negative in a lot of aspects and still took time to even get to some of the positives. So when we're talking about sodomy in the 1700s, they were all male because the, the act itself in that definition would have been two males. Yes, it's, uh, it is interesting because yes, they were all males. The law had actually only criminalized male homosexuality. Technically, female homosexuality was not illegal, but, but there was also <laughs> this. The there was also the assumption that women—they mm. were not sexual beings. The idea oh, was true. that women only had sex to procreate and become mothers. Mm -hmm. So women would not possibly seek out other women to have sex because neither of them would be into it. So if we step away from the legislation <laughs> and we look at actual history, I mean, there's been homosexuality on the female side for thousands of years. I There's, mean. The homosexuality has existed in s some forms for thousands and thousands of years. It's mm -hmm. been there pretty much since the beginning. We can even look back at, say, the Greeks. The Greeks had a lot of it. 
And it, I wouldn't necessarily say it's the same thing as it is today. A lot of people try to look back and say, oh, this is where... Um, it started. Or it started. Began, yeah. But since they didn't have this understanding of it really at that time, we can't really say it started back then because we don't know what their understanding specifically of it was. Because when we look at, for example, the poems of Sappho, right? <laughs> they sound homosexual, but were they really? We don't know. We can't tell. Exactly. And it's like, even if... Um, even if she was interested in other women, we don't know what the social aspect mm -hmm. of that was at the time. That's why I start very specifically with legislation. Yeah, I go with the Buggery Act, and then I mm -hmm. go with where everything has been criminalized and whatnot since then. Everything has been punished and regulated, because now that we have legislation, we know kind of what society is thinking about it. And so we can understand moving forward from that, the motivations, the actions, why everything is happening. And as we continue with that legislation, we can understand the changes that are happening in society. And then as we get to the 20th century and there's more records than just legislation, we've got books, we've got educational materials. Newspaper articles even, yeah. Exactly. So. We don't want to look as far back as, say, the Greeks thousands of years back and start there. We want to start with where we can actually, we actually have documentation that demonstrates why this is happening. But as a historian, you must still be fascinated looking back even further and then wondering, you know, what, what kind of society, what kind of people... Oh, absolutely. It's, I would love to know more about what was happening, like prior to the 16th century when the Buggery Act was enacted. So I have a question I tend to ask then. So if you had a time machine, where would you go? <laughs> well, see, that's the difficult part. <laughs> because as a member of the LGBTQ community, if I even go back 20 years, I put myself in danger stepping out of that yeah. time machine. <laughs> what I mean is that when you go back, you are part of the culture and you get to just observe the culture. What would be sort of your favorite sweet spot where you'd be like, huh, I really want to know what that culture is? Taking away the danger aspect for you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not 100% sure because there's, there's so much as well as there's, in addition to wanting to understand the culture, there's also understanding the things I wouldn't be able to handle. Whereas like even just like if I'm living in a time with uh, no electricity and... <laughs> there's adaptations for sure. I think what it would what would be fun is historians would we all think that we would love to go back in time and go to these time periods and experience them hands on. And we don't realize how hard it's gonna be. A really good example of that is in um, Diana Gabaldon's Outlander books. Uh, the main character, Claire, goes back in time. She adjusts. She has a great time. She wants to stay there. Well, she almost gets killed a bunch of times. <laughs> but she wants but to stay she there. Survives. She adjusts, yeah. and this is where she feels she belongs. Mm -hmm. But later on, when her daughter, um, when Brianna and Roger go back in time... It's a culture shock. It's a very big culture shock. And mm -hmm. Roger, being a historian, he experiences things he doesn't expect to experience, and he doesn't have a good time. Mm-hmm. And so I think as historians, we would tend to be that mm -hmm. way. We want to experience it so much, but then when we get there, it's it's too much. It's not what we expected. Um, we can do all this research and still not have it be what it's expected. Would I, you worry that your bubble would be popped? Let's say you say, I want to go visit Einstein, for example, <laughs> and you, I want to sit next to him and be his assistant for a day. 
and then you realize that maybe you don't like the guy or maybe you do love the guy and you don't want to leave. I mean, there's sort of lots of uh, lots of aspects that could hit you and, and you don't want to lose that, that bubble yeah, you I have. Yeah, I think it would, like, it would <laughs> kind of take away some of the magic in right. some sense. Maybe that's what I'm getting to, yeah. Some of yeah. the magic would be lost a little bit and, and digging through a book, you can shape your own idea around that and never really know, but that's okay as so, a historian. Yeah, so it's like, I think if we did have the ability to go back in time, it would make historical research easier because we would have the ability to um, experience things hands-on. We might be able to get our hands on sources that we cannot get our hands because on Because they've today. been destroyed since, yeah. Yeah, but I think it would really kind of... We're already very cynical as historians. <laughs> we are trained to be cynical, mm-hmm. and I think it might... It would make us even more cynical as we go back and we say, this was not real at all. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. When we get back and find that we wasted all our time (laughs) on this research. (laughs) So going forward then, let's say we go the other way and we say we're going to jump ahead in the time machine. When you're looking at now and you're looking at the subject we're discussing, what's kind of where you're hoping it's going to go? Everybody would like to have this period in time where this is not an issue anymore. When people ask, why do we still have something like pride? Well, I have explained why it's still necessary. Mm -hmm. I would like to have a period of time where it isn't necessary, where all the forms of oppression that still exist today have been eliminated. But I don't don't think that's realistic. That's probably never going to happen. And even if we got to a point where things... um, we're almost perfect in that sense. There is still that history of oppression that we just can't forget about. And as long as people have been oppressed, there's always going to be that overlying fear that it's going to happen again. So I don't think we can realistically get to a part where these things are going to be better and that this isn't going to be something we have to worry about anymore. I would like for it to be. I would like it to at least in the near future get to a point where things are less of a stigma, where the education is given, it is um, very positive focused. A lot of my research right now for my PhD, I'm looking at, say, the relations between education and sexuality in the early 20th century. So now that these terms have been developed and people are understanding it, how is sexuality being regulated and or taught in the schools, either through curriculum or just um, attitudes of teachers, of classmates, etc. And I'm trying to use that as kind of a demonstration of how we can change that in the future in order to kind of like teach people in a more positive way. If the attitudes towards sexuality at that time were very negative and this is how children are being like conditioned to accept it and to go into society and spread that knowledge in that negative conditioning, then we can at least overturn that in that we should have all positive attitudes towards it in school, positive education, condition children to be understanding and accepting mm-hmm. so that when they go out into society, they will be understanding and accepting. Things like race, gender, class, sexuality, it's all been very intersectional. And um, members of, say, members of the LGBTQ community who are um, disabled, who are not white, who are transgender, face a lot more discrimination. So it's all interconnected and it all very much has been. 
Um, just like when we were talking about with the trial records, it was a lot of lower class people. This has always been an issue in there because the higher class people were getting away with more. The same thing would be involving in um, race. Uh, people who, um, in the 20th century especially, as like um, the civil rights movement is happening and whatnot, there's still a lot of people who say, as homosexuality is being decriminalized, sure, the gay white men are the ones that are, people are thinking about when they're thinking about that decriminalization. Oh, these nice gay white men. Black gay men would have had a very different experience. So all of this has all been happening at the same time. And that's actually what um, intersectional feminism is about. There's the different waves of feminism and intersectional feminism, which should be the default, came out of the 1980s. It's very much about looking at race, class, gender, sexuality, everything all together. Because we can't eliminate just one form of oppression and think that we've eliminated that form of oppression because we cannot eliminate um, discrimination towards people on the grounds of sexuality, for example, if we still discriminate based on race because then the racial differences in sexuality is still going to bring in discrimination. We cannot eliminate discrimination about sexuality if we don't uh, eliminate discrimination about class because there's still going to be lower class people who face more issues than higher class people. So it's, they're all, they're all very connected, it's all happening at one time, and it's all something that kind of has to be tackled together in order to make a difference. And when we're looking, we're talking a lot about, you know, we started in London, in England, and then we came to Canada because it's part of the, the trajectory, if you will. And then you did talk about United States, so we've touched upon North America. If we look throughout the world, have the thoughts of homosexuality, have the cultures been different across different... There are many countries where it is still illegal, just as there are countries like the Western world is kind of where it's all like in a better place. Um, if we think of Western Europe, like United Kingdom, France, Spain, it's more okay there. Some of those countries are still trying to um, legalize marriage equality. I believe Ireland had only just done it within the past couple of years. Um, but it's in a better place in Western Europe than it is, say, in Eastern Europe. These days it is easier to understand because of media and whatnot. Like, mm -hmm. we can see what's happening in other countries. In Russia, for example, in the past couple of years, there have been concentration camps for gay men. So it's a very real thing even in modern times. Yeah, it's a very terrifying thing. I've studied a lot of, like, um, Russian imperial history, so not sexuality, mm -hmm. but one of the places in the world that I want to visit most is Russia, so I can get my hands on some of these primary sources from the things I've studied. But I'm not walking into Russia anytime while they're still throwing gay men in concentration camps. As an LGBTQ, yeah. Yeah, I mm -hmm. would be terrified. It's a very real thing mm -hmm. in a lot of places in the world where it's still illegal. There are Eastern European countries where it's you still face um, mutilation or oh, the really? death sentence um, just for being gay. A lot of what's happened in the Western world is very um, 
connected in that say like what happened in England is kind of what influenced what happened in England's colonies. And what's happening in England is not far off from what's happening in the rest of Europe at the time. A lot of things that were happening in Europe throughout history are usually happening throughout a lot of Europe. It's just happening slightly different in different mm -hmm. countries. So in the Western world, we know all kind of centers around what was happening in like the 16th to 18th century. But we don't know why necessarily it's been happening in other areas of the world. And there's probably a lot of historical research that can be done there in order to pick that up. It's just something I've never touched on. It's crazy that it's happening elsewhere in the world. And that's another one of the things where we think it's really good here. And compared to places like Russia, it is really good here. And that's one of the ways that people kind of disillusion themselves into thinking it's okay now and we don't have to worry about it. They compare it to places like Russia and say, well, we're not dealing with that, <laughs> yeah. so we're good now. Yeah, yeah. Can't keep comparing to other countries. We don't have any control over what they're doing. It affects us in a way. Everything that like happens travel, in the world affects us. Mm -hmm. But it's not a direct effect, whereas everything that's happening here in Canada now is something we need to be aware of as Canadians. Mm -hmm. A lot of Canadian history gets overlooked, especially because we focus a lot on what's happening in the United States. United States politics, even today, overshadow Canadian politics. We hear so much more in the news about what's happening in the United States, and we just, we focus on that, and we don't focus as That's much on That's a common factor of different things. You know, women throughout history. Mm -hmm. It's so hard to find these sources. I mean, they're, they're overlooked. So they're a footnote in history. They're not so much part of the process. Well, exactly. And that's like why I was able to bring up a couple times like, oh, there was a study done on this in the United States. Exactly. There's uh -huh. a study on this in the United States. Everybody's always looking at the United States. When we're talking about North, North America. Yeah. So it's like we really need to focus a lot more on Canada and what Canada has done and what Canada is doing. That's an important factor that you're bringing up, and as a Canadian, of course. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Those uh, numbers you pulled from Canada where you talked about Vancouver and Ottawa and Montreal, were they hard to find then or were they not too bad? I had the benefit of a lot of these numbers were... Um, I pulled them from the same person's sources. Okay, so somebody so actually somebody went. So somebody else has uh -huh. done this research. Which this is was good. actually um, Gary Kinsman, who is a professor emeritus at Laurentian. Mm -hmm. He is one of the biggest like local uh, historians and sociologists. It's hard to kind of categorize him because <laughs> he kind of gets... Historians say he's too sociological and the sociologists say he's, <laughs> he's too, too historical. <laughs> but uh, he does a lot of that LGBTQ history in Canada. So he's been able to pull some of these numbers. So if we were ourselves to start digging, that gets a little complicated. I think, yes, it would get a lot more complicated because the thing is, in the, I mean, this is in history regardless of where or when you're studying. It's not just a matter of not knowing if the sources are there, but it's knowing where to find them. Mm -hmm. Because some sources have been moved, some sources have lost. <laughs> lost. So it's probably likely that it's going to be difficult for me to find them. Mm -hmm. What do I have to consider now when I go to search for them? Well, I appreciate it, Ryan. Thank you so much for enlightening us. The, the history is much further back than most people understand. And very interesting how in North America and Canada was very much affected by England. Mm -hmm. And the legislation is also very interesting, even though I'm not 
much into the law part. I'm not a very big law person, but when we're talking about systems of oppression, we have to look at that system. Mm -hmm. In order to understand maybe why those comments are being spewed, we need to look very much at the legislation. So yeah, I'm not very much of a law person, but it is very important to look at the law and the politics of it when you're looking at things like that. Mm -hmm. Well, I really appreciate you looking into this so you can share all this knowledge. (laughs) And I wish you luck finishing your doctorate. I mean, that's a big undertaking and it's quite exciting. And I appreciate you taking the time uh, on this tiny little podcast that hopefully somebody listens to. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. (laughs) Ryan had some book recommendation, and both of them were nonfiction. The first one would be Richter Norton's Mother Claps Molly House, The Gay Subculture of England, 1700 to 1830, and Gary Kinsman's the Regulation of Desire, Homo and Heterosexualities. Don't forget to catch me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can also visit the website for extras on each episode. It would be great if you can rate me on iTunes. Apparently, it really helps people find my podcast. So anything you can do to share all this information would be fantastic. And I'd like to thank my husband, Jamie, our brood of kids, our family, our friends. Without them, I wouldn't be adventuring through history. Un grand merci.